These are Nebraska corn farmers. They work in acres, not hours, harvesting the energy and climate solutions the world needs. We are proud to stand with you. The success of tomorrow's soy industry depends on the actions we take today. The future is here, and the time to move is now. Market Journal, television for agricultural business decisions, is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Hi everyone, I'm Bryce Duskit and thank you so much for joining us today on Market Journal. It's hard to believe, but we're nearly halfway through the month of November with the holidays quickly approaching. On this week's show, we're going to learn how Farm Rescue is helping farmers and ranchers in challenging times. Plus, we've got a look at the latest when it comes to weather, as well as markets with Lakefront Futures and Options own Darren Fessler. That's a look at what we have coming up on the show, but first... Nebraska FFA was well represented at the 96th National FFA Convention, which was held last week in Indianapolis, Indiana. Members qualified for the national competition by first competing at the state level last spring, advancing first place competitors to the national competition. Two national championships were won by Nebraska members in the always competitive career and leadership development events. I had a chance to visit with them immediately after those results were announced. Caleb Most of the Ogallala FFA chapter came in first place in the extemporaneous speaking contest. Most advanced through three rounds, giving three speeches that he drew a separate, unrelated topic for each time on an ag-related issue. He would then have 30 minutes to prepare and practice his four to six minute speech. Spoke on agricultural education and ag literacy. Second round, I spoke on agricultural sustainability. And then, then in the last round, I spoke on advocating for the use of herbicides and pesticides. So for some of our viewers and listeners today, the thought about giving a speech on a topic that you're not prepared for is quite intimidating. How do you do it? How do you go about uh, writing your speech and being able to deliver that in pretty quick turn, turnaround time fashion? Yeah, to be honest, it's just something that's come with a lot of practice. Okay. Uh, it's something I've done for four years now. so. I've put a lot of time into this activity. It's something that you do not perfect right away. You have to uh, kind of get a system down through a lot of trial and error and then um, kind of figure out what works for you. And so for me, I try to uh, use no more than like six or seven minutes on research and spend the rest of the 30 minute prep period just practicing my speech, going over and over it again. You're able to stand on the stage and hear your name called as the winner of the extemporaneous speaking. What did that moment feel like? It was, yeah, it was unbelievable and kind of indescribable. Um, it's just such a great feeling, uh, something that is just like a once in a lifetime opportunity. And it's honestly, it's pretty hard to describe this feeling. Members of the West Holt FFA chapter were also named national champions in the Conduct of Chapter Meetings Contest. That is a contest designed for younger FFA members to demonstrate their knowledge and practice of official FFA meeting procedures, including opening and closing ceremonies and parliamentary law. Team member Monica Chavez recalls the moment on stage as those results came in. I heard third place and I was waiting for the second place and the second I heard the S, I 
It was the best feeling in the world. After so much preparation and so much hard work, it just all was a great relief. You bring up pep preparation. What would that look like for you and your teammates? Well, we would practice at least every day, every week. Maybe twice a day, maybe just once, but we'd go through motions, go through questions. It was a lot of work, but it all paid off. Why put in all that hard work? Well, for us, it was just an opportunity to do something great for our chapter because we knew we had a talent and we kept working towards it and we knew eventually if we worked hard enough, we could reach the school. Two other Nebraska students were named national champions for their proficiency projects. Stewart FFA member William Paxton won the specialty animal production area. Meanwhile, Sumner Eddyville Miller FFA member Creighton Line won his area, which was environmental science and natural resources management. A full list of results can be found at ruralreadynetwork.com. An impressive year for Nebraska FFA members. By the way, the numbers are in, and more than 70,000 FFA members, advisors, and guests attended this year's national convention. That is a lot of Blue Jackets that took over Indianapolis. Let's take a quick look back as this past October we celebrated Co-op Month. This is a unique opportunity for cooperatives to communicate their values and their principles and how they conduct their business. We recently sat down with Rocky Weber from the Nebraska Cooperative Council. Get your time, Rocky. This year's theme is owning our identity. What does that mean to Nebraska cooperatives? Well, ownership is really one of the fundamental unique features about the cooperative business model. You know, th this is a business model where the people who use the cooperative, the farmer patrons, actually own the cooperative. They sit on the board of directors of the cooperative. They participate in the economic benefits of ownership by having any excess profits returned to them. And so that it really is the hallmark of, of what a cooperative is, and that's owning, owning our identity. That unique structure allows the cooperatives in the state of Nebraska to do some pretty unique things, and that's one of them I think comes to mind is multi-generational aspects of it, of serving the different producers. A lot of families can look at three different generations, perhaps even four at this point, that have been dealing with local cooperatives. Well, and the co-ops themselves, because they're run by families and, and generations of families have a generational outlook to them as well. You know, Bryce, our, our first cooperatives in Nebraska were incorporated over 100 years ago at the beginning of the last century, and many of those legacy cooperatives continue to operate today in Nebraska. And normally, when we look at the business climate, a new business today has a chance of surviving somewhere between 15 and 20 years. And so when you think about these generational cooperatives that have been there to serve generations of families, they've been able to weather because of the, the owner's equity, the farmer equity in these companies, they've been able to weather the economic storms, uh, they stay in the marketplace, they don't come in and serve the farmer when they can make money and then leave when they can't, they are there for the long haul to serve the members of, of those cooperatives. As we look at the total number of farmer-owned cooperatives in the state of Nebraska, the number is a little bit more than 30, but there are a lot of locations, a lot of small towns across Nebraska, aren't they? The, they are, and, and really they're kind of the backbone of our rural economy. So there might only be 30, roughly 30, 31 cooperatives, ag cooperatives in Nebraska today, um, but there are over 400, I think right at 401 locations across the state of Nebraska, and we've actually seen an increase in locations as, as ag cooperatives determine where bush, best to put new facilities, generational facilities to serve generations of farmers, where they determine where to best put them, we've seen a growth in locations uh, in the state of Nebraska to serve our communities. 
as we celebrate Co-op Month, as we did this past October, it's always a good time to look at the economic footprint of these co-ops. And I know you guys track the stats year to year to see how big of an impact you mentioned, kind of the, the backbone of some of these local communities. What numbers do you have to share this year, Rocky? Well, you know, uh, our farmer-owned cooperatives across the state of Nebraska employ just over 5,000 people with a $380 million statewide payroll. That's huge in rural Nebraska to have those entities to provide that type of job opportunities, jobs with great benefits, great pay. Uh, serving about 55,000 farmers. Now, there's only 45,000 farmers in the state of Nebraska, roughly, but many farmers belong to one or more cooperatives, and so they are considered owners of, of all those cooperatives. Last year in Nebraska, our farmer-owned cooperatives returned economic, cash economic, and equity economic payments to our farmers to the tune of about $138 million. This is either cash or equity right back into rural Nebraska, farmers who live around rural communities, and really provides the economic backbone for these rural communities. Um, in addition to that, our farmer-owned cooperatives reinvested in their property plant equipment, about $226 million. Again, most of these investments in our rural communities in the form of uh, fertilizer terminals and shuttle trains and and all sorts of equipment to serve the farmers needs. Agriculture is changing a lot and the ag co-ops have to change with them. Finally I want to mention that uh, our farmer-owned cooperatives last year from a local standpoint each cooperative collectively gave about three million dollars back to their local communities in charitable contributions supporting their local fire departments, supporting their local school organizations, youth sports teams, um, you name it, uh, supporting their local communities. And why? Because they're owned by the farmers that live and work and, and, and have, a, have a stake in those communities. Well, Rocky, as you mentioned, agriculture is always changing across the heartland. And to that point, I'm curious your thoughts on why co-ops and cooperatives, are, are they have the right structure to be able to last for the next 50, 100 plus years. It's because of the members' equity that the members have in the cooperatives. You know, as cooperatives make money, they, they spend money in three ways. They, they'll reinvest in property, plant, and equipment, and, and one important piece of that is this generational aspect. They're not spending money on assets that will last for two years. They're spending money on assets that will last for 30 years. Um, the next thing they do is they, they, they give back cash patronage and they support the farmers in giving back cash patronage. And then the final thing is that really allows farmer cooperatives to stay in that marketplace is the members' equity. That provides the ability for the farmer-owned cooperatives to weather the economic storms, weather the weather in Nebraska, and, and stay in the marketplace even if it's not profitable to do so because they're backed up by the farmers' equity. And the farmers, Bryce, are not looking for a return on investment they're looking for the goods and services. And so the cooperatives don't have to satisfy shareholders and provide a return on investment, which is very different than a for-profit company, whereas a for-profit company wants to come into the marketplace when it can return money to their investors, but they will leave the marketplace if they cannot return money to their investors. And that's the big difference. That's a good point, Rocky. I appreciate you coming in, sharing a little bit more about uh, the co-ops in Nebraska. Thanks Happy to do, Bryce. Thanks. If you'd like to learn more about Co-op Month and the different ways you can celebrate, you can find, a, find an informative link along with this story. We post that over on the Market Journal website. Well, let's turn our attention now over to the markets. Joining us here on the desk this week is Darren Fessler, Lakefront Fusion Options. Darren, good to see you. Good to see you as well. Harvest wrap it up across the country. How do you see things? 
Yeah, I, I, it is wrapping up. There's still obviously still harvest being done in parts of the Dakotas, North Dakota. They've dealt with some little bit of snow issues, and same thing in Wisconsin. Uh, but overall, I mean, it's, it's finishing up nicely. I mean, we're pretty much on pace with where we were the last five years. So uh, I think now there's a question: is uh, well, what do we do with the with the bushels we have, and uh, and and where does the markets go from there? That's really kind of the questions are that are that I'm getting from producers anyway. That's the question. You've got the answers. We'll unpack some of that here in the time we have. December corn sitting as you and I have our conversation today. Uh, 476 sideways trend. What's happening there? Yeah, the, the momentum still remains bearish and uh, lakefront were much more technically driven type type uh, hedgers and traders but as long as the momentum it remains bearish here momentum being the five and nine day if they're below that 20 day uh, exponential uh, we're continuing to see a little bit trickle trickle lower here I mean obviously we're still holding those uh, mid-September lows which we're going to have to watch very very closely here because there is some higher volume levels below here right around 460 maybe 450 but in general I think the the drag on corn is just simply because we don't have the great export market right now fundamentals remain weak uh, Brazil's coming off a good crop. I think the U.S. in general is coming off an okay crop. Record crop? No. A good crop? Decent crop? Probably. Um, and we're going to know more with what, what the USDA says this week and how the reaction is in the weeks ahead here, but it's just it feels like corn is just treading water right now, just spinning its wheels. All right, I've got a couple viewer questions we'll get to on the corn front. First, I want to get your thoughts on the soybean market. Go to the chart. We are climbing a bit higher here. Your thoughts bullish on that market? Yeah, momentum is, is is higher, so we're going to continue to lean higher there. Obviously, driven by the meal market as well. Argentina is very very low on their supplies coming off their drought. We know Brazil had a record crop last year. Their neighbor is going to have the supply to meet that, but it's going to lead way for some higher prices here. I mean, China is stepping into this market. I think China is probably hedging some of their bets here. Just if if these weather situations prolong and and it does get hot, dry for an extended period of time in Brazil, I mean, China is doing what they need to, but it is leading way for some higher beans. We have a really, really uh, tight stocks use here in the States. So again, we, we're going to have to have some risk premium continue to be put into this market. Let me get your thoughts on wheat too. Middle of the week, seeing some momentum in that market. You look at the global stage though, in the U.S. wheat price is still really not competitive here. Yeah, I mean, HRW, um, some of the higher priced wheat in the world. I mean, the, if, if there is any type of story for U.S. wheat, it's going to be the SRW. Um, that is some of the cheapest wheat in the world. But you know, Ukrainian and Russian wheat continues to flood the world market, and it, it, so we got to be more competitive with the French market. I, I, I use that as kind of the barometer for our, our markets, and we're still just not there quite. So we're, we're going to have to have some type of catalyst in the wheat market to really drive it higher. Maybe it's short covering, maybe it's a technical play, but right now HRW is just a tough market to be in. Let's go back to corn. We'll get to uh, two of our viewer questions, questions that we received this week. First one comes in, asks on corn, what are we going to see first? 425 or 525? Your thoughts? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it depends on the time frame. I, I do think that, you know, we're approaching the year end. I think it's going to be difficult for corn to gather any sort of steam here, especially uh, if it doesn't get pushed by beans or pushed by wheat. I would say that I think that if you get 525, it's a sell, uh, just given the dynamics of our export market and, and half of that business is Mexico. We need a little bit more help from the rest of the world. But I'm going to say, I'm going to uh, be on the more bullish side here. I think that we can see 525 because uh, there is a lot of unrest around the world. Middle East, there's still issues going on in the Black Sea. So any sort of escalation there could be a, a, a price spike where funds say, hey, we got we got to get in this market now. So 425 still a ways away. I'm going to say 525. 
How long could it take to get there? I mean, they weren't really trying to pin you down here, but several months, or could that be something shorter term? Well, you know, if we get beat down enough here, I, 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 I think it's a play on basis. So basis is going to get stronger the lower we go. But we get to the February insurance pricing period. I think that could be the, the opportunity where we get to that 525, uh, especially on the May board or maybe even the March board. I know we're a ways from it, but I would probably say in that February, the March time frame, when we're trying to adjust for these acres. Because acres are going to be down next year, according to the USDA baseline numbers that they released earlier this week. All right, second question, still on corn. This one looking at the short term of the market. This uh, viewer has corn sitting in town. He needs to make a decision by the end of the year what to do. Any hope for corn short term before the end of the year to go higher or should he just pull the trigger sell today? It, you know, I, I, I wish I'd, the answer could be yes, it's going a lot higher, but it, right now I feel corn is spinning its wheels. I think I would much rather just price it here, not take the roll uh, and look for some re-ownership opportunities if the market presents it. Um, again, I, I think it's a play on basis here simply. The lower the price goes, the stronger basis gets because I think that once you get to all the fall fall work done here, harvest is wrapped up, it, it's going to become a cash flow needs and not necessarily we have to sell to sell. We're going to sell what we need for those cash flow. But again, I think that $5 cash is kind of the figure most guys are looking for, at least $5 and above. A lot of producers you're talking to store and ignore when it comes to soybeans right now? Well, I, I'm certainly not telling them to <laughs> telling them to do that. I, I think it, the, the levels are still higher here. The momentum is still higher. Continue to reward this rally here because if Brazil does, the weather models do change. If China comes in here, buys more, the question is if Brazil has the crop, does China actually follow through on those commitments or do they start canceling? I think the higher we go, we just continue to nickel and dime this market higher. Let me wrap up with this. A lot of things happening outside the U.S. borders right now. What's most important for producers to pay attention to as it relates to their green marketing plan? Try to ignore the noise as best as possible. There's a lot of geo macro plays that right now, uh, geo uh, geoeconomics. Um, you gotta watch what this China's economy does. I mean, what do they do? Do they step in here? Do they start buying because of hedge needs, or do they buy because they're fearful that their own supplies are dwindling? Uh, I think we the, the noise aspect can get re, get guys really emotionally tied to their markets and and trying to you know you know, separate those two and just stick with plans, stick with targets as you advance sales here on rallies, I think is probably the most important thing. I appreciate Darren joining us here on the show this week. You heard me ask Darren a couple of your viewer questions, and of course we welcome those here on Market Journal. So be sure if you have a question to drop me an email so I can pass that along next week. Well, if you're planning to plant a new windbreak or shelter belt next spring, preparation can start right now. Whether it's killing vegetation on site, tillage, or even finding the correct location, now is the best time to conduct that kind of work. You can get some additional tips on fall windbreak preparation in the November issue of the Nebraska Farmer. Well, it is now time to check in with Nebraska Extension Ag Climatologist and Market Journal Chief Meteorologist Eric Hunt. Eric, it's been a pretty mild November thus far. Certainly not complaining about that, but how do things look as we turn to the week ahead? Well, thanks, Bryce. It has indeed been a mild November, and I don't think the outlook I'm going to show you here in just a second is going to disappoint you if you're wanting mild weather to, to continue. So as we head into next week, we're going to be looking at a large upper-level ridge over the most of the north-central United States. This is July or August. I'd be very concerned about excessive heat. But since it's been November, we're going to be looking at temperatures statewide, mostly the 60s, ample sunshine, lighter wind speeds, and just generally very uh, pleasant weather. Uh, we probably should enjoy it because this may not last forever. So you head into the later portion of the week, though, we are looking at a storm system probably moving into the southwest that should start making its way into the central plains and western Corn Belt. 
Now, again, the timing and strength, a lot of these things are as, as often the case is uncertain at this point, but it does look like we should be getting some chances of rain into the uh, state as we head into the later part of next week, particularly the eastern portion of Nebraska. Now, the CPC's recent outlook that was put out on Thursday is actually very bullish on precipitation across almost the entire U.S., including all of Nebraska. I will say at this point, the models have not been particularly bullish on precipitation for most of the western half of Nebraska. They're a bit more bullish on precipitation for the eastern half of Nebraska. Uh, so again, I think the eastern portion of the state, rain, rainfall is fairly likely as we head into next weekend. I'm a little bit more uncertain of that in the western portion of the state. Uh, I am a lot more confident, though, that we will be very, relatively mild through at least the middle and later portions of November. Uh, with the CPC showing very strong chances of above average temperatures continuing probably to around Thanksgiving or maybe even past that. Let's take a look at the drought monitors which was released on Thursday morning. Uh, so we did see a bit of degradation here in the last couple of weeks across parts of southeastern Nebraska, particularly southeast of Lincoln. So we now have some D1 back into Cass County and eastern Richardson County. And we saw some D0 put into Pawnee and Johnson counties. The good news though is this is the least amount of drought we've had since late July of 2021. And for the none category, which is white on this map, this is the least or this is the most that we've had since June 30th of 2020. So that's very, very good news. We did see a lot of uh, abnormal dryness eradicated with the map that was released uh, last Thursday. So in terms of precipitation last seven days, most places in the state had not received much precipitation. Uh, we did see a couple places did pick up a couple tenths of an inch array with maybe uh, Webster County, maybe a couple places picked up four or five tenths of an inch. Last 30 days, uh, again, this is kind of a north versus north of Platte versus south of Platte story here in the last 30 to 45 days, where most places north of Platte have done fairly well with moisture, and in the southeastern part of the state in particular, have done quite poorly with precipitation, which is why we're now starting to see some degradation on the U.S. drought monitor. I would point out that some places in northeastern and north central Nebraska did have upwards of 6 to 10 inches of rain in the month of October, and some places probably likely saw their wettest month. Uh, or wettest October on record. Norfolk came just shy of the wettest October on record. Uh, but the good news is you actually are running above precipitation uh, for the year 2023, which is great news considering 2022 was the driest year on record in that area. In terms of soil moisture to finish out for the update, uh, again, uh, quite dry across parts of southeastern Nebraska and soil moisture percentiles are generally fairly low uh, across southwestern Nebraska. So again, very much the north of Platte versus south of Platte story. Um, hopefully we can get some precipitation in this part of the state as we head into the later part of next week to improve this map. Thanks. Back to you, Bryce. Alrighty, thank you very much for the update, Eric. We appreciate that. Finally today, as we know, farming and ranching can be pretty demanding occupations. Unfortunately, accidents and illness can often get in the way of performing essential tasks. That's where the organization Farm Rescue comes in, helping more than a thousand farm families since their inception back in 2005. Market Journal's Bill Dodd brings us this story. The mission of Farm Rescue is to help family farms and ranches bridge crisis so that they have an opportunity to continue viable operations. This program provides families a chance to continue their livelihood by providing the necessary equipment and manpower to get the job done at no cost to the producer. So Farm Rescue is a nonprofit organization that helps farm and ranch families in crisis. So do, if there's an injury or an illness or a major uh, natural disaster like a fire, tornado, something like that wipes out their equipment and for whatever reason, the family is not able to get their crop in or out or, or make their hay or haul hay, uh, those kinds of things, um, we come in and do it for the family. So uh, we serve in eight states, so uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Montana, and then Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, and Illinois. And uh, so uh, the idea is to help the family through a crisis, uh, help them get through the other side, um, 
and make sure their crop is going in or out and or their livestock's being taken care of so they can focus on recovery, rebuilding, whatever it is they need to do during that time and not have to worry uh, about the, uh, the crops and livestock. It does take a lot of manpower to work through acres of land. However, with a network of hundreds of people across multiple states, a vast majority of all on-farm work done by Farm Rescue is the direct result of compassionate volunteers who have affectionately come to be known as the Angels in Blue. Um, but we have, I would say, probably somewhere around 500 uh, volunteers uh, from, I think, about 48 states. Uh, and they come and they absolutely do all the work. They, they run the planters, the combines, the haying equipment, the semis, whatever needs done. Uh, it's, it's all our volunteer effort and uh, we call them our angels in blue. Without our volunteers, we simply couldn't do all this. We really appreciate them. It's no secret that many ag producers are proud and private people who like to keep things close to their vests. With that in mind, Farm Rescue relies heavily on referrals from family members, friends, and neighbors who recognize the struggles some operators may face in a time of crisis. They, they, can, they can absolutely, in fact, I would say a lot of our uh, cases that we learn of come from a family member or some, some one of the ag businesses the family does uh, work for, with or for. Um, uh, oftentimes people are shy uh, about reaching out on their own um, or they don't know we're here. Uh, so we appreciate you helping us tell our story uh, that's why we're here at Husker Harvest Days this week is to get the word out. Um, if they don't know about us, we can't help them. So we appreciate your help in helping us get the message out. When it comes to funding a project of this magnitude, personal and corporate donations really make this operation capable of doing what it does. From being a volunteer or a monetary donor, there are several ways that you too can get involved with Farm Rescue. So we, we rely on private donations, both from individuals and corporations. Um, we're 100% funded that way. So uh, we have a lot of companies that have been with us for a long time, both large and small, uh, since we were founded in 2005. Um, and uh, we started out in North Dakota and, and have spread to those eight states that I mentioned earlier. We're very, very pleased with that uh, uh, growth so far. Uh, since 2005, we've been able to help uh, just over 1,000 families. In fact, this past summer, we helped our 1,000th family. So uh, that was a milestone for us. Uh, and uh, we hope to help uh, many thousands more in the coming years and, and hope to grow uh, into more states as, as, we, as we get the resources. Occasionally, injury or illness can lead to lean times or outright shutting down an operation. However, that doesn't need to be the case. Farm Rescue's track record indicates three years after receiving Farm Rescue assistance, more than 90% of the assisted families have been able to maintain operations ever since. If you or anybody you know could use some assistance on their agricultural operation, it may be time to see what Farm Rescue has to offer. Reporting for Market Journal, I'm Bill Dodd. Now folks, if you know a family in need, you're encouraged to reach out to Farm Rescue using their phone or email. You see that information at the bottom of your screen now. Well, that is all the time we have for this week's show. We appreciate you making time for us. You can follow along with our team on social media throughout the week, and be sure to subscribe to Market Journal for, on YouTube for additional content. We hope to see you back here next time. But until then, I'm Bryce Duskit, wishing you a safe and productive week. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.
Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.